Welcome to Science and Storytelling, a GSA 75th anniversary podcast on aging. I'm Joanna Chase, Associate Professor at the University of Missouri Sinclair School of Nursing in Columbia, Missouri. In today's episode, I'll be interviewing Dr. Susan Reinhardt, Director of AARP's Public Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., to discuss the topic of family caregiving and older adults. Dr. Reinhardt oversees teams working on health security, financial security, and family, home, and community issues, and serves as Editor-in-Chief of Policy Plus Action, the AARP Public Policy Institute newsletter. She is a nationally recognized expert in health and long-term care with extensive experience in conducting, directing, and translating research to promote policy change. Welcome, Dr. Reinhardt. Thank you. I'm very, nice. I'm, very, I'm very excited to speak with you today about family caregiving. Uh, we'll first start with some questions about your own story and how you became interested in the field of aging and this area of family caregiving. And then we'll talk about how research and policy intersect to impact family caregiving. So Great. let's go ahead and get started. Okay. So how did you become interested in the field of aging? So first of all, please call me Susan, (laughs) and I'll call you Joanna. That'll be great. So you're a nurse, and I'm a nurse, so we can start there. When you are, you know, in school as a nursing student, you have many different interactions with real people and their families. You know, you, you see them in the hospital, you do visits in their homes, you go to different settings. And so many people, of course, who are looking for care are older people. And many older people have family members who are helping them. So that becomes, if you're aware and alert to that, and not just only on the disease or the task you're doing, if you're really looking at the person and those that are around them, it becomes pretty obvious that that older people and their family caregivers, you know, they don't call themselves family caregivers, of course, they call themselves mother, sister, brother kind of thing, (laughs) but that they have particular needs. And I just found it very interesting to begin with and then compelling after a while that as a nurse, I could help there's something I could do. And it wasn't only the technique, it was talking and listening and trying to help people find where they are and what they could do to maintain their health, improve their health, and not just physical health, but mental health, spiritual health. You know, health is such a broad concept that that's really what interested me in this. And then as I went on in my nursing career, I became a visiting nurse. I'll I'll say more about that in a moment. But I also then went on to get a graduate degree and then a doctorate. And my doctorate, I chose to specialize in the sociology of aging, or actually age, which is across all ages, right, as well as medical sociology and health policy. So I did a lot of deep study of families across different issues. And whether it was For example, a person with serious mental illness who is an adult and a family member, older adult, is actually continuing to provide support to the younger person, or it's a younger person continuing to give support to an older person. It became, and then where does the healthcare professional fit in? 
that's where like this triad kind of thing and how do you talk to each other and work as a system so so i've done it from a practice point of view and then i taught rutgers college of nursing i taught uh, all the way to policy i became a deputy commissioner of uh, health services in new jersey so then became extremely interested in what services could be available to older people and to their family uh, members not only to help them with any healthcare problems, but to find volunteer opportunities, learning opportunities, how to continue to choose how to live as they age, which is a very ARP statement, I realized. Could you tell me a little bit about the story of how you, I guess, made that jump from the clinician into research and then systems, policy, um, especially that, that jump from research to the policy piece? So I mentioned that I became a visiting nurse actually very soon after I became a nurse. And the the old way of doing things is you had to be in a hospital for at least six months before you could be a visiting nurse. So I went to a VA, Veterans Administration Hospital, on a neurological floor, which again brings a lot of family members in into a long chronic conditions, many, you know, uh, multiple sclerosis. Uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. So I got, again, more exposure to what it's like to manage chronic condition over time and what it takes. And uh, along with the techniques, feeding tubes and things of that sort that people needed. And then I became a visiting nurse, which is what I really wanted to do. And then you learn very quickly, you know, you ring the doorbell, ding dong, and who answers? Typically, it's a family member who's answering and you are leaving your professional control kind of thing and going into someone's home, a family's home, and you are an advisor, you're a consultant. And I really enjoy it. It took a while to sort of figure all that out, right? So I would see many different people, not only older people, but by and large, many uh, older people and their families. And this one particular patient and it was a patient not you know i know we try not to use those words but this really was a patient had lou gehrig's disease als is the kind of clinical term but lou gehrig's disease most people would think of it and so she was pretty advanced and needed a feeding tube and other things and she was a retired teacher and her husband just adored her he just adored her i don't know how to explain it it was such a, a an amazing couple and he, I had to teach him how to insert a tube, how to give the tube feeding, and you have to like pull back the syringe so it's not in the lung. And I was doing it, and it was a Friday. I'll never forget this, obviously. It was a Friday, and I'm teaching him all this, and I'm thinking, good Lord, when I learned to do this as a nursing student, I was shaking. Mm-hmm. How come, how is he going to be able to do this? So, but he was great. He was, he just listened and I had him show me again and she was very patient and trusted him. So it was a very good situation. Um, but I was worried about leaving him, them. And I gave him my home phone number. <laughs> I can't just leave you. So feel free oh, to call me. Anyway, that's what started this idea of we expect, and this is years ago, right? Many years ago. We expect family caregivers to do things that they never expected to do, that they are often afraid to do. They're worried about it, but they feel, what else am I going to do? I've got to do this, right? 
In fact, research later has shown us that family caregivers, half of them feel they never had a choice. And that doesn't mean they don't want to do it. It just means, well, who else is going to do it? Right? I have to do this. So so my interest in this stems from very practical working with families as a nurse, then trying to figure out going into policy. I'll get back to research, but I became, I did do research. I went, I was at the College of Nursing conducting other research about this family caregivers professional interaction, that triangle, and whether or not professionals listen to family caregivers and what are the laws around that. Like I kept studying all this stuff, right? And then I was recruited to become eventually a deputy commissioner of health in New Jersey. And we created health and senior services. And then I was able to create programs, like funded programs under Medicaid. It was like amazing. It was an amazing (laughs) thing. Because when I was in practice, you realize you could help one at a time, right? Right. I'm going to help this person. I'm going to help that person. And then when you get into policy, I call it community health nursing. It's caring at a societal level that ideally, if you can put things in place, you can help more than one person at a time, hopefully many people at a time. And so that's why I got into policy. It was very much out of the the uh, practice uh, view. I, I love what you said there, carrying at the societal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's, um, that's amazing. And an amazing story that you told of your work. And I wanted to touch now about some of the research pieces, and you commented a little bit about that um, already. What are some examples of how research findings translate into practical use? So I eventually wound up recruited to ARP. <laughs> so, uh, to well, I was at the Center for State Health Policy at Rutgers, but anyway, I was recruited to ARP to, I guess you would say, re- restart or I don't know, transform. I don't know the words they used at the time. The Public Policy Institute at ARP, which is the think tank, I call it the think and do tank. And I was always a fan of the Public Policy Institute because they conduct policy research in a very, I call it, action-oriented way. Like, here's this research, here's what you can do with it. So I was delighted to go. I thought I'd only be there a few years, and now it's 14 years. So oh, wow. <laughs> I know, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of addicted to this now. <laughs> but, but anyway, so I was there, and and we have many different teams and uh, I brought some caregiving research and started it there. But as I was doing this, I had a grant from the John A. Hartford Foundation, which again, I brought with me from Rutgers and um, we had some money left over. We were looking at the role of nurses and social workers in supporting family caregivers. That was the focus of the grant. And there were partners, mm-hmm. social work organizations, nursing organizations, but we had some money left over. And I asked if we could use it. That's often what you do with a grant. Can I repurpose this funding? And I had to do a little convincing, right? But I said, I've always wanted to explore this concern of mine that I've had since I was a young visiting nurse about what we are expecting family caregivers to do. And I don't know of any research that has quantified that. Like, how big an issue is this? And they said, okay, you can do that. So it became what I worked with Carol Levine. She's just a renowned person in family caregiving. And I had done some work with her on this in general about what are what was the job of family caregivers? Is it activities of daily living? 
and instrumental activities of daily living. But what about this whole thing over here where they're doing all these things, you know, including, by the way, navigating systems. Like there's a whole lot of other stuff going on besides the ADLs and IADLs, which is great research that was like 60 years ago. Right. No, so that's great, but let's not stop there. Let's keep thinking about what's going on in the world of complex care. And so we did this together. And really, it's a descriptive study of what is it that family caregivers are doing and what worries them. And how, how did they get any training or guidance in very specific things we asked about different kinds, you know, medications, injections, tube feeding, special diets pain management. And what we found is what is now called home alone, because what we, and she, I have to give her credit because she's the one who said, that's what we should call it. Of course, all the lawyers had to make sure we were able to call it (laughs) movie called home alone, right? (laughs) So yes, we were able to use that term. So it's called home alone because what we found is that half of caregivers are doing these complex tasks, half, which we didn't know that. It, it actually did surprise me a little because as a visiting nurse, I would, you know, that's a select group. So it's already, of course they are. But I didn't know if you look at the whole universe of almost 50 million family caregivers, that half of them are doing these kinds of things. So that was a lot. But then when you ask them who helped you, it was virtually no one. There was hardly anything going on from doctors, nurses, social workers. Blah. And you know what? Maybe there were efforts to guide them, but these are people saying what they perceive, right? This is self-reported data. So in their mind, they didn't get much help at all in understanding how to do these things. And half of them, or actually more, I think, were worried. They were worried about making a mistake they were worried about hurting the person. So so there's lots of findings around that. And then actually just a few years ago, the, uh, 2019, we got funding from the John A. Hartford Foundation again to look at it again. And this time we had a bigger sample. We could oversample for multicultural populations. We could do multiple regression. We could do much more than we could do with that first descriptive study. And it reinforced. It was still, it it, it actually was a little more than 50%. It's still, you know, half people don't think they have a choice, as I mentioned. And they they do say they can, they get some help. Usually the more complicated the task, they get some help. So if you are going to give an IV, you're more likely to get some instruction on taking care of someone with an intravenous that's right into your bloodstream, right? Care at home than you are with uh, something else, but it's still not 100%. It's like, really? So it's generally, they don't feel they're getting enough kind of help. So based on this research, even from the beginning at ARP, you know, ARP is an amazing organization. So I'm doing the policy research, but there's this whole arm called advocacy Right. And my colleague there, Elaine Ryan, who was in charge of state advocacy and a a family caregiver herself for years, long distance for her mother and father. How many of us? Right. So many. Right. Right. She said, we have to do something with this research. So long story short, we went to dinner and it's the old back of the envelope, back of the napkin. Yeah, (laughs) literally. We had a pen and we were writing on this like, what is it we have to do? Right. So we met with other people, we did all these different things and da-da-da, and we developed the Model Care Act. 
which is the Caregiver Advise, Record, and Enable um, Act. And it's very, very simple. And it draws, so this is now practice, my, you know, practice to research to policy in a very clear line, <laughs> almost wow. linear, a linear line, right? And she, uh, we, we, it's a very simple thing. It says, it, it, we, we chose hospitals. Like we know it's not only hospitals, but you got to start somewhere. Right. So anyone who enters a hospital has to be asked if they have someone who's going to be helping them when they go home or when they leave. Basically, do you have a family caregiver? And if the person says, and by the way, that's not just older people, that, that's including mothers giving birth. This is anybody. Wow. Yeah. And it, so you have, you need any diagnosis, mental health, all of that. Do you have someone? Then yes. If yes, do you want them in your health record? Do you want that person's name or people's name in the health record? And if that's yes, then what, if we expect that you're going to do things, you must offer training. Or I, we need to say training because that sounds like you're nursing training or doctor training, right? right? It's more, we call it guidance, guidance mm-hmm. support. And then finally, you need to be told as soon as possible when the person's going to be discharged. So those are the four things. That's why it's called that. And you say, oh my goodness, didn't that have to happen anyway? Yeah, right. <laughs> we need a law for this? Oh my goodness, right? So the state offices at ARP took this on and they worked with people, with consumers and would do town halls. They'd have like thousands of people come out and say, wow. yes, this is true. So so then it's not just just research, right? Now you have the voice, loud voices of people saying, yes, that is my reality. That happened to me. This is happening. And then they affected the legislatures to pass this in 44 states. It's almost national, right? We have a few states that are holdouts. The hospital associations generally did not like this. And I understand who likes to have a law. My favorite was one state. I won't say which one. I was there to help with the testimony. But this one one uh, hospital association said, we already do this. We already do this, right? But if you make us do it, we're going to need a million dollars. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) In the same sentence. I mean, it was the same paragraph in writing. I'm like, we either do it or you don't, right? Right. (laughs) So anyway, so we now have the CARE Act. So that's research into policy. And we're very proud of it. Wow, that that is amazing, and that's a, a really great story of, of that linear. Just how much you're impacting people across the country. So that's amazing. But so then, actually, it's people themselves that came out and pushed for this. It's it's people advocating for themselves. And that's a that's an interesting point, you know, about family caregiving. I often tell students that I work with that are interested in family caregiving, I, I tell them that we're all going to be a family caregiver at some point in time. If if we have family, if we have friends, if we have neighbors, if we have, you know, other people we hang out with, we all will take care of someone. It really behooves us to understand how we can best do that. And, um, you know, we might not be reading the research, but there are organizations like AARP and GSA that are out there trying to help and helping uh, to to create policies that that impact us positively. But looking forward, um, what does the future hold for for family caregiving, do you think? So I want to say when you said GSA, and I know this is part of the GSA celebration, 
the first place outside of like strictly a nursing group, the first forum for presenting this was at GSA. It was a big group and it was such an interesting reaction because I'm, you know, I'm on a panel. It wasn't just me. So I'm one of the panelists. You get that 15 minutes or whatever. And I reported it out. And the reaction was, oh, we all knew this, right? We should have known this. We know this, right? That it was a great reaction because it wasn't like this is rocket science. This is science. It's like illuminating or spotlighting something that is a reality. And most of us had some sense of it, but now we could name it. We could name it, quantify it. And so research is like that. And GSA, I give them a lot of credit, really wanted to get the word out and have, uh, have been doing that. So I really appreciate that. And we have since then with the CARE Act, and this goes into your future two ways. So that GSA reception, I'll call it, has translated further into medical nursing tests is what we called it, also complex care. It's now part of the language. It's part of the conversation. And I really love that, that I'm, I'm not even cited most times. Like the research is not even, it was initially, but it's so much part of an understanding now that it's just there. Like that to me is a home run, right? Yeah. So, so part of the future is really, really continuing that understanding that family caregivers have to be considered. You must consider them and you have to include them in, in many different ways. So I'll give you a very specific example. The hospital at home, you've heard about that, mm-hmm. which is great. I think it's a great idea. Johns Hopkins really pretty much started it. It's very popular now. It's, uh, private sectors, really, it's not just under Medicare. Private sectors picking up on this, especially since COVID. However, the research, the evaluation research, really does not address family caregivers. Mm-hmm. Initially, the evaluation, the outcomes was were you more likely to die or not if you had hospital at home? Which, of course, is really, really important. But there are <laughs> other things, other things, both from the patient experience, but the family experience. So is this something that family caregivers are able to do? Because if you have been a hospital at home, there is not an art registered nurse there 24 hours a day coming in and out of the room. There isn't a home health aide there 24 hours a day. You've really got to have somebody else there, right? You've got to have them. Do they know what they're doing? Are we including as part of the package that they must have this guidance and support? I believe it's it's not, when I look into it, and we're going to do more on this, by the way, I'm going to be working with Ann Tumlinson, if you know Ann. We're going to be doing more work on this. Um, what exactly do we know about this? And is this going to... I, I don't like the word burden, although I have a burden instrument, but, I <laughs> but I, it's really responsibility. How much responsibility are we giving family members? Are they able to do it? Can you help them do more? Can we get more resources into the home so family caregivers don't have to shoulder it all? We don't want all of the profits or the savings to just go to providers. We need to make sure that family members are considered part of that team and that the evaluation has to include their um, their experience in this as well as the patient's experience. We have also 
devoted ourselves to developing lots of resources, you know, and trying to get others to develop resources. So we have, with the CARAC, we followed up and did site visits with many of the facilities and learned from them promising practices, which we now have a series. We're releasing the last couple within a month, I think. And that gets into, you know, like in the hospital, how do you ask somebody if they have a family caregiver? How do you ask that question? So we got that from many different site visits and and what they learned. How do you identify them? One of my favorite ones is a hospital in New York who gives the family caregiver a a name badge, just like, you know, like you have, right? Like as a nurse, it says RN, right? Or MD this or physical therapist that, right? It It would say Susan Reinhart, family caregiver family member, however they want to do it. But my favorite part is that they can go into the the gift shop or the cafeteria and get a 5% discount. I mean, that, that's marketing for one thing. It's pretty yeah. smart. But it also, it's, they're recognized as part of the team, more seriously within rounds and, and what have you, but they're also rewarded in that way and recognized. So anyway, we have a number of promising practices how about staff training, about resources to, um, to, to family members. And we also created a video series, which is, we call them how-to videos. And we, we really, this is after the first research, we really figured they must be out there. So we, you know, had interns and everyone looking, we did ourselves, we did a round table on it, inviting anyone we could think that would know this. And there weren't any, any that has a family caregiver in it. So any training would be like you training your students, right? right? Or or somebody training the patient, right? So if you're training a patient to give an injection, like say a subcutaneous injection into their abdomen, that's a different camera angle. (laughs) Right. Family (laughs) caregiver who's looking straight at it as opposed to down. I know that sounds, oh, so what? But no, if you're a family caregiver trying to learn how to do this, you got to know what you're doing, what you're looking exactly. at. Exactly. So we have developed, I, I can't tell you offhand, I think it's like, I don't know, eight or nine series. Each of the series have about six videos in them. Many of several of them are in Spanish. And now we're doing them with like voiceovers in many different languages. And we're trying to do that. And wow. there's tip sheets. So, I mean, we did one on peritoneal dialysis. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Which is happening in the home. And by the way, we did it before COVID. Once COVID hit, oh my goodness, a lot of peritoneal because people did not want to go and get kidney dialysis in any setting. They didn't want to be in any setting. So more and more came to be a kind of old fashioned, old school peritoneal dialysis. So so I know that's a very technical term, but it's for people whose kidneys aren't functioning well. And what can you do? So we have lots of different videos. We're now working one on pain management. And we're also working with the John A. Hartford Foundation on their age-friendly health systems. You may be aware of that, that I'm sure you are because GSA has been involved in that. And so that is saying that it's very important to the four M's, what matters, mentation, medication, and mobility, but it doesn't currently have family caregivers intentionally, systematically included in all of the protocols and guidelines and what have you. So we're working with them and with Rush to do that. And we're going to have a video series on that. So we're going to continue 
some more work on videos. And we have other funders. The Ralph C. Wilson Foundation has been uh, really very good at this too. But we want others to do it. This isn't something that I envision my entire future producing videos. (laughs) But we do need we need all all of those, maybe you can do this where you are, to be aware that family caregivers need resources in knowing how to do what they do and bringing the evidence. Everything we do is evidence-based. So we work with the UC Davis College of Nursing. Dr. Heather Young was our principal colleague on this from the very beginning. And now she has others at the Family Caregiving Institute that work with us. Everything gets published in the American Journal of Nursing, peer-reviewed. So it's all evidence-based. And hopefully it's teaching not just family caregivers, but in this case, nurses, mm-hmm. how to teach others. So we're, that's what we've been trying to do. And I think the future is more of that because more care is, is at home, whether it's acute care, rehab, long-term care, and COVID has made that even more so that we have to help individuals and family caregivers understand how to help themselves and and not leave them home alone. Yeah, it just sounds like all of this work up until now is really spotlighting family caregivers. They've been around for so long and it's almost like they were, they were like this hidden part of the healthcare team. Mm-hmm. And all of this work that you've done and you and your um, colleagues have done has really brought to light, like what you said, like naming this problem or framing this problem so that we can tackle this problem and family givers have, have a voice. So bringing that their voice out. So those are all of the questions that I had for you today. And I, I want to thank you again for spending the time with us and sharing your um, amazing story from you know floor nurse to a policy expert and really implementing changes that impact broader populations. Is there anything else that you want to leave us with regarding family caregiving? Well, just that I, I, you know, there are many partners we work with, so I don't mean to take all the credit for all this work. You know, there are many organizations. I'm on the board of the National National Alliance for Caregiving. There's the Family Caregiver Alliance. There's other groups that have been working really hard and continue to work hard on this and other policies like credit for caring. So family caregivers can get some help financially because it's, you know, a lot of this takes money as well. So I I just want to acknowledge the tremendous amount of work that's going around the country to try to do better. And so what about Rose, you know, Rosalind Carter? Carter, Yeah. I mean, the Carter, Rosalind Carter Institute is like amazing. So I just want to make sure I give credit that there's so much going on. Uh, the RAISE Act, uh, now the National Academy for State Health Policy, which I was the former chair of that board, but they have, are doing tremendous work on getting those guidelines out from the advisory committee. So there's just a lot going on in terms of the future. And I, I hope that it just keeps going and, and speeding up, that the Me pace too. is up even more. <laughs> It's really inspiring to see the the collaborative efforts, um, the state level, federal level, and just organizationally, everyone pulling together to both recognize and help family caregivers across the country. Um, so thank you again. Thank you for thank all you. the work you do and sharing you so your story. Much. I enjoyed right. it so much. Thank you for the opportunity. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 
to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.